Chapter 11, Part 2 of Volume 2 of Airplane Flying Handbook, FAA-H-8083-3A. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Dore. Airplane Flying Handbook by the FAA. Transition to Complex Aircraft Part 2 Turbocharging The turbocharged engine allows the pilot to maintain sufficient cruise power at high altitudes where there is less drag, which means faster true air speeds and increased range with fuel economy. At the same time, the power plant has flexibility and can be flown at a low altitude without the increased fuel consumption of a turbine engine. When attached to the standard power plant, the turbocharger does not take any horsepower from the power plant to operate. It is relatively simple mechanically, and some models can pressurize the cabin as well. The turbocharger is an exhaust-driven device, which raises the pressure and density of the induction air delivered to the engine. It consists of two separate components, a compressor and a turbine connected by a common shaft. The compressor supplies pressurized air to the engine for high-altitude operation. The compressor and its housing are between the ambient air intake and the induction air manifold. The turbine and its housing are part of the exhaust system and utilize the flow of exhaust gases to drive the compressor. See figure 11-5. The turbine has the capability of producing manifold pressure in excess of the maximum allowable for the particular engine. In order not to exceed the maximum allowable manifold pressure, a bypass or wastegate is used so that some of the exhaust will be diverted overboard before it passes through the turbine. The position of the wastegate regulates the output of the turbine and therefore the compressed air available to the engine. When the wastegate is closed, all of the exhaust gases pass through and drive the turbine. As the wastegate opens, some of the exhaust gases are routed around the turbine through the exhaust bypass and overboard through the exhaust pipe. The wastegate actuator is a spring-loaded piston operated by engine oil pressure. The actuator which adjusts the wastegate position is connected to the wastegate by a mechanical linkage. The control center of the turbocharger system is the pressure controller. This device simplifies turbocharging to one control the throttle. Once the pilot has set the desired manifold pressure, virtually no throttle adjustment is required with changes in altitude. The controller senses compressor discharge requirements for various altitudes and controls the oil pressure to the wastegate actuator, which adjusts the wastegate accordingly. Thus, the turbocharger maintains only the manifold pressure called for by the throttle setting. Ground boosting versus altitude turbocharging. Altitude turbocharging, sometimes called normalizing, is accomplished by using a turbocharger that will maintain maximum allowable sea level manifold pressure, normally 29 to 30 inches Hg, up to a certain altitude. This altitude is specified by the airplane manufacturer and is referred to as the airplane's critical altitude. Above the critical altitude, the manifold pressure decreases as additional altitude is gained. Ground boosting, on the other hand, 
is an application of turbocharging where more than the standard 29 inches of manifold pressure is used in flight. In various airplanes using ground boosting, takeoff manifold pressures may go as high as 45 inches of mercury. Although a sea level power setting and maximum RPM can be maintained up to the critical altitude, this does not mean that the engine is developing sea level power. Engine power is not determined just by manifold pressure and RPM. Induction air temperature is also a factor. Turbocharged induction air is heated by compression. This temperature rise decreases induction air density, which causes a power loss. Maintaining the equivalent horsepower output will require a somewhat higher manifold pressure at a given altitude than if the induction air were not compressed by turbocharging. If, on the other hand, the system incorporates an automatic density controller which, instead of maintaining a constant manifold pressure, automatically positions the wastegate so as to maintain constant air density to the engine, a near-constant horsepower output will result. Operating Characteristics First and foremost, all movements of the power controls on turbocharged engines should be slow and gentle. Aggressive and or abrupt throttle movements increase the possibility of overboosting. The pilot should carefully monitor engine indications when making power changes. When the wastegate is open, the turbocharged engine will react the same as a normally aspirated engine when the RPM is varied. That is, when the RPM is increased, the manifold pressure will decrease slightly. When the engine RPM is decreased, the manifold pressure will increase slightly. However, when the wastegate is closed, manifold pressure variation with engine RPM is just the opposite of the normally aspirated engine. An increase in engine RPM will result in an increase in manifold pressure and a decrease in engine RPM will result in a decrease in manifold pressure. Above the critical altitude, where the wastegate is closed, any change in airspeed will result in a corresponding change in manifold pressure. This is true because the increase in ram air pressure with an increase in airspeed is magnified by the compressor resulting in an increase in manifold pressure. The increase in manifold pressure creates a higher mass flow through the engine causing higher turbine speeds and thus further increasing manifold pressure. When running at high altitudes, aviation gasoline may tend to vaporize prior to reaching the cylinder. If this occurs in the portion of the fuel system between the fuel tank and the engine-driven fuel pump, an auxiliary positive pressure pump may be needed in the tank. Since engine-driven pumps pull fuel, they are easily vapor-locked. A boost pump provides positive pressure pushes the fuel, reducing the tendency to vaporize. Heat Management Turbocharged engines must be thoughtfully and carefully operated with continuous monitoring of pressures and temperatures. There are two temperatures that are especially important, turbine inlet temperature, TIT, or in some installations, exhaust gas temperature, EGT, and cylinder head temperature. TIT or EGT limits are set to protect the elements in the hot sections of the turbocharger, while cylinder head temperature limits protect the engine's internal parts. Due to the heat of compression of the induction air, a turbocharged engine runs at higher operating temperatures than a non-turbocharged engine. Because turbocharged engines operate at high altitudes, 
their environment is less efficient for cooling. At altitude, the air is less dense and therefore cools less efficiently. Also, the less dense air causes the compressor to work harder. Compressor turbine speeds can reach 80,000 to 100,000 RPM, adding to the overall engine operating temperatures. Turbocharged engines are also operated at higher power settings a greater portion of the time. High heat is detrimental to piston engine operation. Its cumulative effects can lead to piston, ring, and cylinder head failure and place thermal stress on other operating components. Excessive cylinder head temperature can lead to detonation, which in turn can cause catastrophic engine failure. Turbocharged engines are especially heat sensitive. The key to turbocharger operation, therefore, is effective heat management. The pilot monitors the condition of a turbocharged engine with manifold pressure gauge, tachometer, exhaust gas temperature turbine inlet temperature gauge, and cylinder head temperature. The pilot manages the heat system with the throttle, propeller RPM, mixture, and cowl flaps. At any given cruise power, the mixture is the most influential control over the exhaust gas turbine inlet temperature. The throttle regulates total fuel flow, but the mixture governs the fuel-to-air ratio. The mixture, therefore, controls temperature. Exceeding temperature limits in an after-takeoff climb is usually not a problem, since a full-rich mixture cools with excess fuel. At a cruise, however, the pilot normally reduces power to 75% or less and simultaneously adjusts the mixture. Under cruise conditions, temperature limits should be monitored most closely because it's there that the temperatures are most likely to reach the maximum, even though the engine is producing less power. Overheating in an en route climb, however, may require fully open cowl flaps and a higher airspeed. Since turbocharged engines operate hotter at altitude than do normally aspirated engines, they are more prone to damage from cooling stress. Gradual reductions in power and careful monitoring of temperatures are essential in the descent phase. The pilot may find it helpful to lower the landing gear to give the engine something to work against while power is reduced and provide time for a slow cool down. It may also be necessary to lean the mixture slightly to eliminate roughness at the lower power settings. Turbocharger failure. Because of the high temperatures and pressures produced in the turbine exhaust systems, any malfunction of the turbocharger must be treated with extreme caution. In all cases of turbocharger operation, the manufacturer's recommended procedures should be followed. This is especially so in the case of turbocharger malfunction. However, in those instances where the manufacturer's procedures do not adequately describe the actions to be taken in the event of a turbocharger failure, the following procedures should be used. Overboost condition. If an excessive rise in manifold pressure occurs during normal advancement of the throttle, possibly owing to faulty operation of the wastegate, immediately retard the throttle smoothly to limit the manifold pressure below the maximum for the RPM and mixture setting. Operate the engine in such a manner as to avoid a further overboost condition. Low manifold pressure. Although this condition may be caused by a minor fault, it is quite possible that a serious exhaust leak has occurred creating a potentially hazardous situation. 
shut down the engine in accordance with the recommended engine failure procedures unless a greater emergency exists that warrants continued engine operation. If continuing to operate the engine, use the lowest power setting demanded by the situation and land as soon as practicable. It is very important to ensure that corrective maintenance is undertaken following any turbocharger malfunction. Retractable Landing Gear The primary benefits of being able to retract the landing gear are increased climb performance and higher cruise airspeeds due to the resulting decrease in drag. Retractable landing gear systems may be operated either hydraulically or electrically, or may employ a combination of the two systems. Warning indicators are provided in the cockpit to show the pilot when the wheels are down and locked, and when they are up and locked, or if they are in intermediate positions. Systems for emergency operation are also provided. The complexity of the retractable landing gear system requires that specific operating procedures be adhered to and that certain operating limitations not be exceeded. Landing Gear Systems an electrical landing gear retraction system utilizes an electrically driven motor for gear operations. The system is basically an electrically driven jack for raising and lowering the gear. When a switch in the cockpit is moved to the up position, the electric motor operates. Through a system of shafts, gears, adapters, an actuator screw, and a torque tube, a force is transmitted to the drag strut linkages. Thus, the gear retracts and locks. Struts are also activated that open and close the gear doors. If the switch is moved to the down position, the motor reverses and the gear moves down and locks. Once activated, the gear motor will continue to operate until an up or down limit switch on the motor's gearbox is tripped. A hydraulic landing gear retraction system utilizes pressurized hydraulic fluid to actuate linkages to raise and lower the gear. When a switch in the cockpit is moved to the up position, hydraulic fluid is directed into the gear up line. The fluid flows through sequenced valves and down locks to the gear actuating cylinders. A similar process occurs during gear extension. The pump which pressurizes the fluid in the system can be either engine driven or electrically powered. If an electrically powered pump is used to pressurize the fluid, the system is referred to as an electrohydraulic system. The system also incorporates a hydraulic reservoir to contain excess fluid and to provide a means of determining system fluid level. Regardless of its power source, the hydraulic pump is designed to operate within a specific range. When a sensor detects excessive pressure, a relief valve within the pump opens and hydraulic pressure is routed back to the reservoir. Another type of relief valve prevents excessive pressure that may result from thermal expansion. Hydraulic pressure is also regulated by limit switches. Each gear has two limit switches, one dedicated to extension and one dedicated to retraction. These switches de-energize the hydraulic pump after the landing gear has completed its gear cycle. In the event of limit switch failure, a backup pressure relief valve activates to relieve excess system pressure. Controls and Position Indicators Landing gear position is controlled by a switch in the cockpit. In most airplanes, the gear switch is shaped like a wheel in order to facilitate positive identification and to differentiate it from other cockpit controls. See figure 11-6. 
Landing gear position indicators vary with different make and model airplanes. The most common types of landing gear position indicators utilize a group of lights. One type consists of a group of three green lights, which illuminate when the landing gear is down and locked. See figure 11-6. Another type consists of one green light to indicate when the landing gear is down, and an amber light to indicate when the gear is up. Still other systems incorporate a red or amber light to indicate when the gear is in transit or unsafe for landing. See figure 11-7. The lights are usually of the press-to-test type, and the bulbs are interchangeable. See figure 11-6. Other types of landing gear position indicators consist of tab-type indicators with markings up to indicate the gear is up and locked a display of red and white diagonal stripes to show when the gear is unlocked, or a silhouette of each gear to indicate when it locks in the down position. Landing Gear Safety Devices Most airplanes with a retractable landing gear have a gear warning horn that will sound when the airplane is configured for landing and the landing gear is not down and locked. Normally, the horn is linked to the throttle or flap position and or the airspeed indicator so that when the airplane is below a certain airspeed, configuration, or power setting with the gear retracted, the warning horn will sound. Accidental retraction of a landing gear may be prevented by such devices as mechanical downlocks, safety switches, and ground locks. Mechanical downlocks are built-in components of a gear retraction system and are operated automatically by the gear retraction system. To prevent accidental operation of the downlocks and inadvertent landing gear retraction while the airplane is on the ground, electrically operated safety switches are installed. A landing gear safety switch, sometimes referred to as a squat switch, is usually mounted in a bracket on one of the main gear shock struts. See figure 11-8. When the strut is compressed by the weight of the airplane, the switch opens the electrical circuit to the motor or mechanism that powers retraction. In this way, if the landing gear switch in the cockpit is placed in the retract position when weight is on the gear, the gear will remain extended, and the warning horn may sound as an alert to the unsafe condition. Once the weight is off the gear, however, such as on takeoff, the safety switch will release and the gear will retract. Many airplanes are equipped with additional safety devices to prevent collapse of the gear when the airplane is on the ground. These devices are called ground locks. One common type is a pin installed in aligned holes drilled in two or more units of the landing gear support structure. Another type is a spring-loaded clip designed to fit around and hold two or more units of the support structure together. All types of ground locks usually have red streamers permanently attached to them to readily indicate whether or not they are installed. Emergency Gear Extension Systems the emergency extension system lowers the landing gear if the main power system fails. Some airplanes have an emergency release handle in the cockpit, which is connected through a mechanical linkage to the gear uplocks. When the handle is operated, it releases the uplocks and allows the gears to free fall or extend under their own weight. See figure 11-9. On other airplanes, release of the uplock is accomplished using compressed gas, which is directed to uplock release cylinders. 
In some airplanes, design configurations make emergency extension of the landing gear by gravity and air loads alone impossible or impractical. In these airplanes, provisions are included for forceful gear extension in an emergency. Some installations are designed so that either hydraulic fluid or compressed gas provides the necessary pressure, while others use a manual system such as a hand crank for emergency gear extension. See figure 11-9. Hydraulic pressure for emergency operation of the landing gear may be provided by an auxiliary hand pump, an accumulator, or an electrically powered hydraulic pump depending on the design of the airplane. Operational Procedures Pre-Flight Because of their complexity, retractable landing gears demand a close inspection prior to every flight. The inspection should begin inside the cockpit. The pilot should first make certain that the landing gear selector switch is in the gear down position. The pilot should then turn on the battery master switch and ensure that the landing gear position indicators show that the gear is down and locked. External inspection of the landing gear should consist of checking individual system components. See figure 11-10. The landing gear, wheel well, and adjacent areas should be clean and free of mud and debris. Dirty switches and valves may cause false safe light indications or interrupt the extension cycle before the landing gear is completely down and locked. The wheel wells should be clear of any obstructions as foreign objects may damage the gear or interfere with its operation. Bent gear doors may be an indication of possible problems with normal gear operation. Shock struts should be properly inflated and the pistons clean. Main gear and nose gear uplock and downlock mechanisms should be checked for general condition. Power sources and retracting mechanisms should be checked for general condition, obvious defects, and security of attachment. Hydraulic lines should be checked for signs of chafing and leakage at attach points. Warning system micro switches, squat switches, should be checked for cleanliness and security of attachment. Actuating cylinders, Sprockets, universals, drive gears, linkages, and any other accessible components should be checked for condition and obvious defects. The airplane structure to which the landing gear is attached should be checked for distortion, cracks, and general condition. All bolts and rivets should be intact and secure. Takeoff and climb. Normally, the landing gear should be retracted after liftoff when the airplane has reached an altitude where, in the event of an engine failure or other emergency requiring an aborted takeoff, the airplane could no longer be landed on the runway. This procedure, however, may not apply to all situations. Landing gear retraction should be pre-planned, taking into account the length of the runway, climb gradient, obstacle clearance requirements, the characteristics of the terrain beyond the departure end of the runway, and the climb characteristics of the particular airplane. For example, in some situations it may be preferable, in the event of an engine failure, to make an off-airport forced landing with the gear extended in order to take advantage of the energy-absorbing qualities of terrain. See Chapter 16. In which case a delay in retracting the landing gear after takeoff from a short runway may be warranted, in other situations, obstacles in the climb path may warrant a timely gear retraction after takeoff. Also, in some airplanes, the initial climb pitch attitude is such that any view of the runway remaining is blocked, 
making an assessment of the feasibility of touching down on the remaining runway difficult. Premature landing gear retraction should be avoided. The landing gear should not be retracted until a positive rate of climb is indicated on the flight instruments. If the airplane has not attained a positive rate of climb, there is always the chance it may settle back onto the runway with the gear retracted. This is especially so in cases of premature liftoff. The pilot should also remember that leaning forward to reach the landing gear selector may result in inadvertent forward pressure on the yoke, which will cause the airplane to descend. As the landing gear retracts, airspeed will increase and the airplane's pitch attitude may change. The gear may take several seconds to retract. Gear retraction and locking, and gear extension and locking, is accompanied by sound and feel that are unique to the specific make and model airplane. The pilot should become familiar with the sounds and feel of normal gear retraction so that any abnormal gear operation can be readily discernible. Abnormal landing gear retraction is most often a clear sign that the gear extension cycle will also be abnormal. Approach and Landing The operating loads placed on the landing gear at higher airspeeds may cause structural damage due to the forces of the airstream. Limiting speeds, therefore, are established for gear operation to protect the gear components from becoming overstressed during flight. These speeds are not found on the airspeed indicator. They are published in the AFM POH for the particular airplane and are usually listed on placards in the cockpit. See figure 11-11. The maximum landing extended speed, VLE, is the maximum speed at which the airplane can be flown with the landing gear extended. The maximum landing gear operating speed, VLO, is the maximum speed at which the landing gear may be operated through its cycle. The landing gear is extended by placing the gear selector switch in the gear down position. As the landing gear extends, the airspeed will decrease and the pitch attitude may increase. During the several seconds it takes for the gear to extend, the pilot should be attentive to any abnormal sounds or feel. The pilot should confirm that the landing gear is extended and locked by the normal sound and feel of the system operation as well as by the gear position indicators in the cockpit. Unless the landing gear has been previously extended to aid in a descent to traffic pattern altitude, the landing gear should be extended by the time the airplane reaches a point on the downwind leg that is opposite the point of intended landing. The pilot should establish a standard procedure consisting of a specific position on the downwind leg at which to lower the landing gear. Strict adherence to this procedure will aid the pilot in avoiding unintentional gear-up landings. Operation of an airplane equipped with a retractable landing gear requires the deliberate, careful, and continued use of an appropriate checklist. When on the downwind leg, the pilot should make it a habit to complete the landing gear checklist for that airplane. This accomplishes two purposes. It ensures that action has been taken to lower the gear, and it increases the pilot's awareness so that the gear-down indicators can be rechecked prior to landing. Unless good operating practices dictate otherwise, the landing roll should be completed and the airplane clear of the runway before any levers or switches are operated. This will accomplish the following. The landing gear strut safety switches will be actuated deactivating the landing gear retract system. After rollout and clearing the runway, the pilot will be able to focus attention on the after-landing checklist and to identify the proper controls. 
pilots transitioning to retractable gear airplanes should be aware that the most common pilot operational factors involved in retractable gear airplane accidents are neglected to extend landing gear, inadvertently retracted landing gear, activated gear but failed to check gear position, misused emergency gear system, retracted gear prematurely on takeoff, extended gear too late. In order to minimize the chances of a landing gear-related mishap, the pilot should use an appropriate checklist, a condensed checklist mounted in view of the pilot as a reminder for its use and easy reference can be especially helpful. Be familiar with and periodically review the landing gear emergency extension procedures for the particular airplane. Be familiar with the landing gear warning horn and warning light systems for the particular airplane. Use the horn system to cross-check the warning light system when an unsafe condition is noted. Review the procedure for replacing light bulbs in the landing gear warning light displays for the particular airplane so that you can properly replace a bulb to determine if the bulb in the display is good. Check to see if spare bulbs are available in the airplane's spare bulb supply as part of the pre-flight inspection. Be familiar with and aware of the sounds and feel of a properly operating landing gear system. Transition training. Transition to a complex airplane or a high-performance airplane should be accomplished through a structured course of training administered by a competent and qualified flight instructor. The training should be accomplished in accordance with a ground and flight training syllabus. See figure 11-12. This sample syllabus for transition training is to be considered flexible. The arrangements of the subject matter may be changed and the emphasis may be shifted to fit the qualifications of the transitioning pilot, the airplane involved, and the circumstances of the training situation, provided the prescribed proficiency standards are achieved. These standards are contained in the practical test standards appropriate for the certificate that the transitioning pilot holds or is working towards. The training times indicated in the syllabus are based on the capabilities of a pilot who is currently active and fully meets the present requirements for the issuance of at least a private pilot certificate. The time periods may be reduced for pilots with higher qualifications or increased for pilots who do not meet the current certification requirements or who have had little recent flight experience. End of chapter 11, part 2.